Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. So we set the stage really for a world in which uh, investors are yield starved and they look to the stock market and wonder how much further can the stock price rise. And here to help us understand all this is Milton Berg. He is the chief executive and the founder of Milton Berg Advisors. Thank you very much for being here. Much appreciated. Um, Tell us your your thesis. I was reading some of your notes and I kept sort of shaking my head yes and saying, okay, yeah, you're short, you're bearish. That's got to be a tough position to be in right now. How do you how do you sort of explain that, not only to your clients, but to yourself uh, intellectually? Well, the clients are doing very well, I must say. Uh, we've been doing this about three and a half years. We're outperforming the market by double. We're up uh, 15% per annum versus 7% for the market. So we're doing fine. Sam bearish, yes, and very long-term bearish, but we're, we're more trading-oriented. We're more interested in catching turning points. Our clients got long yesterday, for example. We recommended going long yesterday for a very simple reason. The S&P declined all of 2.9%, yet the VIX surged 44.37% on August 10th. Now, we checked historically, when has the VIX ever surged by 44% on a single day? And nine of the, it happened only 10, 10 times in the past, and 9 out of 10 times, the minimum market gain to the next top was 7%. There's only one case where the market continued lower two days later. It's more than two days later, the market hasn't continued lower, which is suggestive that the 90% probability is there. So we're looking for a 7% rally currently. So we were bearish, but we're bullish. But it's, okay, um, my mind is sort of blowing up a little bit, but I, I'm trying to understand how you marry these two ideas, because it actually makes perfect sense. In a longer term perspective, you are not bullish necessarily on the prospect of economic growth accelerating and perhaps the debt overhang that we're, we're accumulating due to quantitative easing. Uh, but there are opportunities day-to-day to get into the market. Is that what you're saying? We don't see the opportunities day-to-day. The opportunities generally uh, every quarter of a year, and there's even in a bear market, a great bear market like 29 to 1933, or, or a great bear market in, on a real terms from 1966 to 1995 when the, the Dow did 0% over that 29-year period, uh, there's still opportunity for the market was down to be short and many counter-trend rallies where you can go long. So we're not looking for day-to-day trading we were short for about a month and a half, and now we went long again yesterday. But when you say short and long, are you talking about the indexes? Are you talking about specific bonds? Uh, and how do you sort of gauge whether or not it's We're a, we could call a macro shop. Basically, when we pick stocks, it's not because we like the stocks. We pick stocks because we like the market. We short stocks not because we hate the stocks. We short stocks because we hate the market. It's a totally different concept than what most people in this business do. So um, you can call us a macro advisors. We like, we're more directional than anything else. I've worked with George Soros. He's also a very directional type of a fellow. I uh, worked with Stan Druckenmill, also a very directional type of a fellow, which is what we do. Market's going, going to go up. We're going to find stocks to buy, to participate. Market's going down. We're not going to find stocks that are going to do well against the market. We're going to short stocks. So that's what we do. And currently, yesterday, we got long. We, we didn't have the confidence to pick stocks. So we're only doing macro. We're going along the Qs, which is the NASDAQ 100 and the S&P 500. Expecting a rally to last maybe just a month or so, but probably a pretty strong rally. I wonder if you could just describe, based on your experience, which is extensive, what are some of the mistakes that people make when they think that they can trade momentum and follow the market? There's one mistake they're making right now, and everyone's making this mistake. They're looking at how great the economy is worldwide and saying, wow, now's the time to be in stocks. 
forgetting that the time to get in stocks, because now the market is great, was nine years ago. When the, at the bottom of the bear market, you buy stock, because sometime in the future, the economy is going to be doing well. Once the economy is doing well, it's too late. You missed it. That's the basic, basic mistake people are making. People can't comprehend how could the market peak everything is doing so well. That's precisely when markets peak. Have you been building a lot of cash to take advantage of a potential dip? I, my clients are never in cash. My clients are either fully, either short or long, always trying to make money because my clients are basically the titans of the hedge fund industry. We have some, not retail clients, we have some advisors that manage their clients' money, but my advice to them is never to be in cash. The people, they will either to be long or short to market, but individual investors should be in, in cash, in my opinion. So what are the liquid securities, the liquid positions that you make sure to have to change positioning should you be wrong? Well, we just get out of whatever we're long, or we, we get out of whatever we're short. We don't have any, any cushions. On a scale from 1 to 10, how, how bearish are you? Uh, for the long the next, term? Yeah. For the long term, 10. What's the long term for you? How long? Long term, 30 years. What about in the next uh, two <laughs> 30 years? 30 years, meaning because, you know, with the price-sales ratio at, at levels never seen before in the S P 500, with, the, with no cheap groups of stocks, absolutely no cheap group of stocks, with the fact that, as I've mentioned, we've seen long-term bear markets in the past, with the fact that the bond market made its, its yield low a year and a quarter ago, no, actually, yeah, 2011, um, 2000, January 2016. Anyway, July. Anyway, the bond market 30-year was 2.088%. It's now 2.8%. Yeah. There's no reason to be bullish over the long term. Really All no right. reason. Milton Berg, the bullish bear, the bearish bull. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure. Uh, but it, it, it's fascinating, and it shows sort of the conundrum uh, of a market that is bound to go up uh, in spurts in the short term, but not over the long term. Milton Berg, Chief Executive Officer and Founder of Milton Berg Advisors, LLC, based in New York. All right, let's turn our attention now to the world of banking and bring in Yalman Onoran. He is our senior writer for banking and finance for Bloomberg News. Great to have you with us here in the studio, Yalman. Uh, your uh, recent story is uh, that bank profits could increase 20% if there is any movement on deregulation or changes in financial rules. Explain how that would happen. Well, you know, um, of course, we, everybody's watching Congress and and Trump not really get along and and not being able to do things. So one would think, well, then this could not happen either. But but this can because a lot of the the changes that that I looked at and that were actually detailed and highlighted in a Treasury report in June, um, the Treasury report basically said, well, there would be great if we could actually change legislation through Congress, but that probably won't happen. So let's look at the things we can do without changing regulation legislation. So these are all rules that can be tweaked by regulators uh, who are going to be appointed by Trump. He's he's slowly making his appointments. He's done some SEC and CFTC appointments. Um, There's, you know, Fed vice chairman is the name has been nominated, hasn't been confirmed yet. But as these appointments get in place and he, he replaces the leadership of the banking supervisory agencies, he can actually get these changes made. Well, let's so, talk Let's talk about what these changes are because they're actually um, pretty fascinating and uh, pretty wide-ranging considering the fact that it won't take legislation. Can you walk us through? Yes. So, for example, one of them is, is changing how the uh, supplementary leverage ratio, which is very crucial, Basel III uh, uh, reform that came after the crisis um, that sort of 
make sure banks have some capital for all their assets, regardless of risk. Um, and this includes even cash uh, or government bonds, U.S. government bonds, the safest things. But for flat capital required for every asset, and this rule is just supposed to be a backstop so that banks saying, oh, we have no risk, we have no risk, end up having so little capital that they blow up. Uh, but so the rule change would be exempting treasuries and cash from the calculation of this leverage requirement. And then that means you can have uh, more securities, more government bonds without having to worry about capital constraints. So they could lever up uh, their current capital and, and buy more U.S. treasuries. You know, this also brings in the question what they end up doing with that extra money, right? I mean, whether that goes to increase dividends for shareholders or stock buybacks. And and that's going to happen too. And, and you know, buybacks have already, buybacks and dividends have gone up uh, pretty uh, significantly this year. Um, you know, the, after the stress test that were just announced, uh, the results were announced in, in June, uh, banks basically said they're going to return 100% of their profits to shareholders in the coming four quarters. That's a lot, but that means they're not holding back anything to build capital. Right. Uh, one reason that has happened, of course, is, is capital has increased since the crisis. For many years, they couldn't return anything to shareholders. They had to really retain all their profits to build capital. That era, era sort of ended uh, partly as, you know, they're counting on deregulation. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm struck by the concept of pushback, and there are some officials who currently are pushing back, uh, saying that perhaps we shouldn't roll back regulations as aggressively as currently proposed. Among those who have raised that concern is a uh, Fed uh, Vice Chair Stanley Fisher. His board term runs 2020. Um, Fed Chair Janet Yellen is an ally of his. What does the fact that she very well may not be in office and Gary Cohn very well may be the next Fed Chair, <laughs> what does that do to this whole calculus? Um, I mean, there are multiple elements of it. One is, um, you know, Trump can replace the leadership. So Yellen might not be there. But Yellen might not be there as, as uh, the head of the Fed, but she can continue to serve her term. Her term still has time to end as well. Same with Stanley Fisher. Uh, his vice chairman uh, position ends next year, but he can stay on the board of the Fed. So, and, and the Fed is not as um, leader driven as it used to be under Alan Greenspan, the maestro. He basically made them do everything and, and everybody nodded. The Fed really now discusses and, and, and gets to decisions on these things. So if Yellen stays and, and Stanley Fisher stays and, and, you know, and there are enough people who really will not just allow the, the, the leadership to, to force through every change then it might not be easy. But still, the math is a tough one, and you know, one or two leaving is all you need for Trump to sort of fill their spots with yeah. people like-minded, and then all these things can go through. Yalman Onoran, thank you so much for joining us. It's really uh, an interesting story and sure to get the uh, attention of people who are investing in bank stocks, specifically with an eye toward this potential boon. Yalman Onoran is a senior banking and finance writer for Bloomberg.
speaking of fossil fuels, there was another bit of news that caught our attention, and it was talking about how a couple of different coal companies approached the White House for assistance uh, to stave off their bankruptcies. And this was interesting because uh, President Trump has been really uh, remarkably pro-coal. I want to bring in Rebecca Kern, energy policy reporter for Bloomberg BNA, uh, located in Arlington, Virginia. Rebecca, can you give us a sense of what these two companies, Murray Energy and First Energy, uh, were looking for from the White House and sort of the surprise that they did not get it? Hi, thanks for having me. Yes, Murray Energy Corp. and then uh, First Energy Corp. have reached out to the Trump administration um, multiple times, they say, in letters that were posted online uh, yesterday we, we got a hold of, saying they wanted an emergency order to be issued by the Energy Department to allow them to basically keep operating their plants and keep them running uh, as a way to prevent them from filing bankruptcy, but it's a pretty rare instance for the Energy Department to grant these emergency orders. In the past, they've really only done them for large hurricane events or other events that, have, such as like the 2000 California energy crisis, where there is a real um, need to keep plants running for electric reliability of the grid. And it seems the, um, those companies didn't make the case um, enough for for the grant for that order to be granted. Can you explain, Rebecca, how politics enters into this? Well, it is that's what's so interesting. As you mentioned, the Trump administration and uh, President Donald Trump himself has been really forthright about saying he wants to keep the coal industry afloat. Apparently, he mentioned it in his rally last night about you know getting clean coal up and running, and we're seeing that's not the case for the Kemper plant in the Southeast. They're, they're turning that into, into a gas plant. So it's a disconnect between um, this administration saying it, it supports coal, but then in reality, um, there's not a lot they can do. There's a lot of economic factors against the coal industry right now. Well, even in this particular instance, I'm kind of trying to wrap my head around what an emergency stay would mean. Would it just mean that creditors couldn't repossess the plants and that they could keep operating? Or would it mean that the government would actually grant these companies some kind of loan uh, that on the cheap that they could then repay when they're more financially stable? Well, it's really it has to do a little more with the grid and um, these uh, regional transmission operators that decide what plants go online to keep um, basically the grid running reliably. So they want basically uh, Energy Department to issue issue this order, basically directing these grid operators to keep them keep them alive or as an option for grid reliability purposes. But it's not really used for financial um, purposes. I talked to a few Federal Energy Regulatory Commission FERC attorneys who've worked on these cases in the past. They say this isn't a financial um, savior for these plants. That's not really what this order has been used for in the past, and that's likely why the uh, Energy Department didn't grant it, because it's really not handing money to these plants. It's really just a reliability mechanism as a backup to, to keep the grid running. It, it's, it was kind of an odd um, pitch, but it was seemed to be kind of a last 
last pitch these companies are making to try to stay afloat. Yeah. Rebecca Kern, thank you so much. Uh, It's interesting to see the consequences of actual real-life implementation of policies versus some of the rhetoric that we're hearing. Rebecca Kern is energy policy reporter for Bloomberg BNA based in Arlington, Virginia, looking at Murray Energy Bonds maturing in 2021. Today, WPP PLC, which is the world's biggest advertising company, reported disappointing earnings that sent its shares plummeting the most in 17 years. And uh, among the list of various factors that you can blame, perhaps... Why not place some blame on Amazon? Because uh, that seems to be the culprit in a lot of different earnings. Uh, Layla Aboud is a gadfly columnist here at Bloomberg, and she wrote a terrific column uh, talking about the link between WPP's woes and the ascent of Amazon. Layla joins us now. Layla, can you give us a sense of why Amazon has so specifically cannibalized WPP's uh, business model specifically? Well, I think uh, the main thing to understand is that the advertising agencies, um, some of the biggest advertising, actual advertisers in the world are makers of consumer uh, and packaged goods. So the number one biggest advertiser in the world is Procter & Gamble. Number two is Unilever. So companies like WPP, a lot of their business and their effort and their their staff's time goes to serve those customers. Those customers, Procter & Gamble, Unilever, Nestle, you name it, they're being disrupted by Amazon because uh, it's Amazon is now kind of one of the biggest, uh, most powerful actors in retail today. Um, and I kind of use in, in my piece today sort of this, the example of the, of the Whole Foods deal, which um, is kind of, kind of I think, going to end up being seen as a, a real seminal moment in the development of e-commerce uh, in the U.S. It, it, and it's kind of, even though that deal is not going to change um, the advertising business or the, their clients' business overnight, it's a real kind of um, symbolic thing for these businesses, uh, and everybody's worried about it. So, um, you know, when you're an advertising agency like WPP, they're the biggest one in the world, uh, they have to worry about whatever their clients are worrying about, and their clients are worrying about Amazon. Does the scale that uh, that WPP has, as well as some of the other uh, advertising companies that you've uh, written about in your piece, whether it's uh, Omnicom or Publicis or Interpublic, does the scale of these companies work against them now? I think that's a really good question and one that somebody like Sora will get really irritated if you ask him, because I know I've done it before. Um, basically, you have to so – so these big holding companies uh, were basically kind of built up in the 70s, 80s, um, you know, Sorrell building up WPP was really the emblematic uh, person in, in this regard, and, and Maurice Davies did the same thing at, at PBCs. And the game was roll up all these different agencies in different uh, geographies so you could have a global presence to serve these um, you know, big brands that were growing bigger and bigger. I think what's interesting now is that with the rise of online marketing and you know, Facebook and Google and Amazon and, and kind of just the way that shopping and media are changing, um, the value of scale uh, may not be as big as it was for these advertising agencies. So, you know, you have these big holding companies that were built for a different era. And I think if you were designing an advertising agency today, um, you probably wouldn't pick something that looked like you wouldn't create something that 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 looks like WPP, to be honest. Yeah. Well, Layla, uh, Pim and I were talking ahead of this segment about the idea of famous people or, or, you know, well-known personalities just hashtagging something in their Twitter feed or Instagram feed, and that that can be more effective and uh, more visible advertising for some of these companies than, say, a 30-second spot on television. And so, you know, 
Did WPP's CEO, Martin Sorrell, did he talk at all about the move forward and adopting some of these more modern techniques of getting the word out? Yeah, you know, they actually do a lot of this stuff, to be fair. I mean, everyone's having, the market is having a collective freak out about WPP today. I actually think it's a little bit uh, overdone. If you follow advertising, um, you kind of know that all these holding companies, WPP especially, because they're actually quite good um, at doing M&A to, to bring in new innovation and new technologies, they understand what's going on, Sorrel more than anyone. Um, and what they're doing is basically they're, they're trying to kind of spread out. Um, and so they have, WPP has a very big bet on market research and data and kind of data mining. They have another part of their business, which is called Kantar, which advises brands on kind of the effectiveness of their brands. So like, you know, is, how is Tide doing among millennials? We'll go out and study that. So they know, and they even have bits that do social marketing, uh, social media marketing, so like Instagram influencers, they do all this stuff. The problem is, is that kind of as an investor, you buy into WPP, which is kind of massive entity at the top that does a bunch of this stuff. But, you know, the bottom line is if the growth is going to be at, um, you know, revenue growth is going to be at 2 or 3% organic uh, per year now going forward, whereas in the past it was more like 5 to 4% for that holding company level, if you're an investor, all you really, you're really just focused on that. You know, um, so the the holding companies actually make things probably look worse than than what's actually happening in the individual agencies. Whereas a lot of savvy, like you said, Lisa, of, of kind of in in Instagram marketing and in Snapchat and all this stuff. Well, Layla, I'm just wondering, what do you need a big advertising company for if you can go on Instagram? Let's say you are. I mean, this is the news this week that you're the mm. wife of the Treasury Secretary, and you're able to hashtag all of the brands that you're wearing or carrying, uh, that doesn't cost a lot of money, and neither does a six-second YouTube ad. So, I mean, are they really with it, or they just say that they're with it? I think flip it around. So, so if you look at it from the point of view of the influencer who's just putting stuff on, her, you know, hashtags on, on Instagram, yeah, that's really easy. But if I'm Procter & Gamble, um, and I have uh, the Pampers brand, right, so diapers, how do I make sure that people are still buying diapers, right? I have sort of a, I will spend money um, for marketing, which is like trying to spur online sales, search results, uh, couponing, loyalty programs, all this stuff. And then I will also spend money on brand building, which is TV ads, kind of trying to make sure that people have good feelings about Pampers. The ad agencies were always built to, to, to do those two functions totally separately, marketing uh, versus brand building. Trouble is the internet mixes all this stuff together, right? So, so these old categories of kind of, am I doing marketing or whatever, it's, it's totally irrelevant, right? But P&G still has one big aim, which is create brands that people are going to want to buy the products of. And they will use Instagram and stuff like that, but I don't really know that we have the answer yet whether social media networks can really build brands in the long term. It's not very as mass market as you think it is. Well, I want to thank you very much for enlightening us. Uh, Leila Aboud is our columnist, our Gadfly columnist covering European technology, media, and telecoms, joining us from Paris. And uh, you can uh, follow her on Twitter at L-A-B-Boodles, B-O-U-D-L-E-S. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.